In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Yesterday, the Senate released their version of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, and it is not that different from the House version. There are some differences, some of which I'm going to get into, some of which I'm just going to ignore. But of course, the main problem is not the difference, but the similarity in that the plans don't deliver any kind of substantial tax relief, uh, kind of the type of tax relief that Trump is talking about, you know, the biggest tax cuts ever. I mean, it's not even close to being the biggest tax cuts ever. For most people, they're minor tax cuts, and for other people, they're actually minor tax increases. But the real problem, again, is that Republicans can't really be Republicans, given how much debt we have. They like to talk about lower taxes, right? That is their main thing. That's how they get elected, right? We're going to lower your taxes. The Democrats are generally the party of, I'm going to increase your benefits, right? Vote for me, and I will give you something you didn't earn. That's what the Democrats are saying. What the Republicans used to say is, vote for me, and I'll let you keep more of what you did earn, right? That was really the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats were about taking things from other people, and the Republicans were about keeping your stuff, right? and not having other people take it. But the problem is too many Republicans are really Democrats or they're afraid uh, to cut any government spending. Because at this point, 
the deficits are so big that you can't really have big tax cuts unless you're willing to cut government spending. And most Republicans are not willing to do that. I mean, sometimes they're willing to vote not to create a new government entitlement, but they'll never vote to take something away, which is why they didn't really want to take away Obamacare. A lot of Republicans didn't vote for it, but they're not going to vote to kill it. And the problem is, if you really want to cut spending so that you can have tax cuts, where's the money? Well, its defense budget is big. The problem is most Republicans don't want to cut defense. That's the only place they like big government, in theory, is defense. They want small government every place except in the military. And so there's not that many Republicans who will cut defense to enable a tax cut. Now you've got Social Security and Medicare, but a lot of Social Security recipients vote Republican. And so the Republicans don't want to cut Social Security, don't want to cut Medicare, uh, because they're afraid of how the voters will react. So that's off the table. You can't cut interest on the debt unless you're going to default on the debt. Nobody wants to do that. And in fact, interest on the debt's going to go up as interest rates go up. So what's left that Republicans, in theory, could cut even there, they don't want to do it because now they're mean, they're heartless, you're taking away these programs for the poor and the needy. And, and so there's really nothing that most Republicans are willing to cut. So they can't give any tax cuts. But they don't want to level with their constituents and say that they can't really cut your taxes because then what's the point of voting for Republicans, right? I mean, if Republicans won't cut taxes, I might as well vote for the Democrats who are going to give you something else for nothing. So the Republicans want to pretend that they're still Republicans and they can cut your taxes. So they want to pass this big tax cut, right? Because this is what Republicans do, right? We vote Republican when we want lower taxes. So they got to make all this noise about lower taxes. But at the end of the day, they can't deliver. And the only way they can cut taxes for some people is that they raise taxes on other people. And therein lies the problem. Because there are a lot of congressmen that know that people in their districts are going to seek tax hikes. And that's going to be a problem for them. And so it's not as big a problem for the senators because most of the blue states have two, two Democratic senators. But there's a lot of blue states that have Republicans in the House. And those are the Republicans that are going to break ranks because they don't want to vote to raise taxes on their own constituents who voted for them because they wanted lower taxes. But let me get uh, to some of the... The, the changes in the bill. First of all, the, the Senate bill keeps seven brackets instead of four. So it's more complicated in that, you know, you have more, more brackets. The top bracket, though, is actually lowered to 38.5, you know, from 39.6. So you get a tiny 1.1% decline in the top rate. Of course, the top rate doesn't include the Obamacare surcharges because they're not being eliminated in either bill. So the real rate is higher when you add the, the Obama rate. But they did change up a little bit on uh, the deductibility of state and local taxes. Remember the House, because the, the congressmen are a little bit more concerned here from the high-tax uh, Democratic states, the Senate decided we're going to completely get rid of the deduction of state and local taxes. We're not going to have that $10,000 allowable uh, that the, the House threw in at the last minute because they were getting a lot of protests. So the the uh, the deduction is completely eliminated. And when it comes to business taxes, the Senate was a little bit less generous than the House because the pass through deduction. Remember the uh, the House was lowering it to twenty five percent. 
uh, and for when you're working uh, actively it, for a pass-through, it was 25% on 30%, and the other 70% you were going to have to take as wage compensation. The Senate pretty much did away with that. They're, they're leaving the pass-through rate unchanged, although I think they're going to uh, come up later with some deductions. I'm not really sure. So not as generous. And in fact, also on the corporate tax cuts, uh, both the Senate and the House plan uh, both uh, go down to the same 20%. But the Senate actually delays the impl implementation of the plan until 2019. So I guess they're trying to score this maybe over a 10-year period, and they're figuring they'll lose less revenue if they don't cut the corporate tax rate until 2019. That's one year of higher taxes. It shows you how close this is and how difficult it is for the Republicans in the Senate to come up with any tax cuts, even minimal tax cuts that are offset with tax hikes because of the amount of debt that we have and the constraints that they have and the fact that nobody uh, wants to cut government spending. That is the overriding problem, which I've already discussed. But the real estate industry, I guess, had more uh, influence in the Senate than the House because the Senate decided not to reduce the limit of deductibility of your mortgage to 500000 they kept it at a million. You know, initially they were thinking about seven fifty, but at the end of the day, they wouldn't even go to seven fifty. so they left it as is to appease the real estate industry. Of course, the realtors don't like the fact that you can't deduct your property taxes. But, you know, it's interesting. I was reading some articles that were written by the real estate lobby against this bill. And it was all about how the Republicans are going to kill real estate, destroy real estate. And the, the idea was that if the bill passed the way the House uh, had proposed it, that real estate prices would drop by 11%. That was what they said. And it, the reason they got 11% is they said that that's how much the price would have to come down in order for the cost, the after-tax mortgage payment for the typical buyer, uh, be the same. Right. So in order for the buyer to be indifferent between buying a house and having the tax write off and buying a house without the tax write off, that the price of the house would have to come down by 11 percent to even it out. And to me, that simply proves that these tax breaks do not encourage home ownership. They do not motivate people to buy a home. All they do is benefit people who already own a home especially people who want to sell a home. Because if you own a home, yes, right? Now you can deduct your mortgage interest and your property taxes. But if you don't own a home and you want to buy one, what the realtors are saying is if we get rid of these tax breaks, real estate prices will fall. And lower real estate prices, doesn't that benefit someone who wants to buy a house? Doesn't that encourage somebody to buy a house if the price of the house comes down? You see, what the realtors don't want to admit is these tax breaks add to the cost of buying a home, right? Because a home is basically a house and a tax write-off rolled into one, right? The uh, tax breaks are kind of like, you know, the granite countertops or a swimming pool or anything else that you might add to a home to increase its value, except the home builders, you know, if you put, uh, you know, a swimming pool into a home, you got to pay to build that swimming pool. The tax breaks cost the home developers nothing, right? That's a gift from the government. So if I am in the business of creating homes and I can sweeten the pot by, by putting a, the, the tax 
the tax cut cherry on top, and now I get to sell that tax write-off. Because in order to get the tax write-off, you have to buy the house. It's part of the price of the house. And so you end up paying a higher price for the house. So the tax break doesn't actually save you anything. And the real estate industry is admitting that because they admit that the buyer is going to get the savings anyway. Because either he, he pays a high price for the house and gets the tax breaks, or he buys the house at a lower price and doesn't get the tax breaks because he doesn't need them because he got a break in the price. But the realtors are correct in that if you already own a house because you bought the house with a tax break, but now if you sell the house, the buyer can't get that break anymore. The house has gone down in value. So to the extent that you have home equity, you're going to have less home equity, or maybe you'll lose all your home equity depending on how much you have. Now that might have a negative effect on the owner of the house because now he's poorer, or now maybe he's more likely to default, not pay the mortgage, in which case you know there could be more uh, sell the foreclosures on the market, or there could be more supply on the market. That might depress the price, but it really shows you that these government tax breaks don't uh, make buying a house uh, more affordable. It just makes the house cheaper if you already own it. But of course, if you bought it with the tax break, you haven't saved anything because you overpaid uh, to buy the tax break. Other important point, though, I want to talk about is these brackets, because now that you've got seven brackets, right, with a lot of different numbers, you have more of a potential for bracket creep. And if you don't remember the term bracket creep, because it was very popular in the 70s, because we had a lot of brackets back then, but we had a lot of inflation. And inflation would always push people into higher tax brackets. Now, you know, when my father wrote his book, The Kingdom of Malts, and he was explaining inflation and taxation, bracket creep is a big, big part of it. And if you haven't read that book, I mean, obviously understanding bracket creep is important to really getting some of the humor and understanding what my dad is doing with the houses and the rulers. But if you haven't got that book, you should go to shiftbooks.com and order it. I still have copies left. It's The Kingdom of Malls, fantastic book. Initially, it was supposed to be part of, of The Biggest Con, my father's first book, but the publishers took it out and then... When my father started his own publishing company, Freedom Books, that was the first book he published on his own, was that cartoon book, uh, The Kingdom of Malt. And it's a great little book, and I still sell them. I mean, don't buy them on Amazon or eBay. I mean, the, the, you can see them for 100 to $200 a copy. You know, I'm selling them for way, way cheaper than that. What is it, 25 30 bucks? I forget. Or 20, But you get go to shiftbooks.com and and buy a buy a copy. In fact, I think I tack on if you buy one of my other books, I think I, I throw in a copy for 15 bucks. So um, and these are brand new copies. They have never I you know, I found a, a number of copies uh, that my dad had in storage. And so I have you know, I've been selling them directly on on shiftbooks.com. But getting back to the idea about bracket creep, why I think it's going to be more relevant now, especially if the Senate version of the tax cuts pass, right? So we still have the seven brackets as opposed to uh, the four brackets. But I think a lot more people are going to find that inflation is going to be pushing them into higher and higher brackets. Because one of the things that the Senate changed from the House uh, is that they went from indexing based on the CPI to indexing based on the chain-weighted CPI, which is an even more... Uh, manipulated measure 
uh, where the government manipulates the inputs, where the CPI is supposed to reflect substitution. And, and you know, so if, if steak gets more expensive, so I don't buy steak, I buy chicken. And so when you have stuff like this, you can, you know, get an even smaller and smaller number. So even though inflation is driving up costs and maybe driving up people's incomes, if they don't capture that inflation in the chain-weighted CPI, then the brackets are not going to move up to reflect the real increase in the cost of living. And so what's going to happen is inflation is going to move more people into higher tax brackets, which is something the government likes because they get to raise taxes on people without actually voting to raise taxes. That is the beauty, as far as the government's concerned, of, a, of an income tax. Because let's say they have these brackets, and if they could create a bunch of money so that everybody's income goes up and everybody's cost of living goes up, right? So let's say my income is 30000 and it doubles to 60000 but at the same time, my cost of living also doubles, then I'm not any better off making this 60000 than I was when I was making thirty. if everything cost me twice as much. But the government makes more money if by going up to 60000 I am in a higher tax bracket than I was when I was at 30000 So the government wins and everybody loses. They get more taxes without actually having to officially raise them. They let inflation do their dirty work. That's why, you know, my father used to call inflation the government's silent partner, their partner in crime, and they created inflation deliberately because it, it benefits them in so many different ways. But, you know, this, this chain-weighted CPI, I was looking at an article about inflation and the cost of living. And the article was about the rising cost of living and how the CPI didn't really accurately you know, portray how much more expensive the cost of living was. And the article went over the, the components of the CPI and the point was that the stuff that we buy all the time, right, food or your insurance, utilities, I mean, things that comprise the majority of what people spend money on, that these things, more like the necessities, were really rising in price a lot faster than a lot of other parts of the CPI. And so the things that were not going up in price or that were falling in price, you know, were, were helping to keep the CPI lower, but it really didn't uh, reflect the true addition to the cost of living because the things that were going up represented a larger portion of the typical family's budget and things that they needed to buy and they bought all the time, whereas the things that were falling in price, they didn't buy as often or maybe they didn't buy at all. And so just looking at the, that, at the number didn't do the real story. But what was interesting for me is I looked at the, the actual numbers and the thing that really jumped out at me was TV sets. Right? According to the government, since 1997, so over the last 20 years, the price of television sets has fallen by 96%. 96%. Now, that I mean, obviously, TVs haven't fallen by 96%, because that would mean that a television set, if I was spending $1,000 on a television set, I'm buying that same television set for 40 bucks. And, you know, that's not the case, right? So how is it that they're saying that TVs have come down by 96%? Well, they're using hedonics. They're saying that the TVs are better. And it's the improvements that are the reason that the price has gone down so much. But the problem is that is not the way to look at it, right? Yes, TVs are better than they were. But the, when you're looking at measuring the cost of living, you can't just look at the fact that television sets are better. 
you've got to look at what people actually spend to buy a television set. You can't talk about in theory, you know, because obviously I can't buy brand new today the exact television set that I would have bought 20 years ago. They don't make those television sets anymore. And obviously, even if I bought the exact same set that had the exact same features, if it was $1,000, I can't buy it for 40 bucks. It doesn't exist. Now, I can buy something much better than the television they had 20 years ago, but I can't do it for $40. I'll mean, give you an example. I remember in 1997, or just approximately there, I was in my 30s. I had never been married. I was single. I started Europe Pacific Capital about 1996. And I remember I lived in an apartment at the time. I think I had a one-bedroom apartment. And so I had a bedroom and I had a living room. And I remember I bought a television set for my living room. So this was my main television set. And I bought this Sony set. It was all black. And it, I had, it had a, a stand that went with it, a glass stand. And underneath, I had my, my VCR and my, my, some things like that. So it was like a, the TV and a stand, a big black Sony. And it was a, it was a nice set. Right. You know, Sony was the top of the line set back then. And I think I paid like 700 bucks for the set, the TV and the stand, $700. And I remember thinking it was a big purchase. I, you know, I didn't, you know, I wasn't chintzing out. I mean, it wasn't the most expensive TV set that I could buy, but it was a decent price. And this was my main TV, right? It was in my living room, right? And at the time, you know, I, you know, I was, not making that much money because I had started my firm a few years back. So maybe I was making seventy-five to a hundred thousand dollars a year, single guy. And you know, I bought I bought this television set. Now, today, right, if I were the same age, single, making about the same amount of money relative on a relative basis, like a young professional guy, single, buying my main television set, my main television set, according to the government. If I spent $700 on my television set 20 years ago, since television sets have gone down by $96 in price, would Peter Schiff today, or somebody like me, like I was then, who was buying their main TV set right now, their main TV set for their living room in their apartment, would they be able to do it for $28? Because according to the government, when you're talking about a 96% decline, if a television set cost me $700, in 1997, it should be $28 today. There's no way, right? If I went and bought a television set today for my apartment that was probably comparable, obviously I'd buy, I wouldn't buy 32 inch. Maybe I'd buy a, maybe I'd buy a 60 inch screen, right? I mean, they make bigger than that, but say 60 inch big screen is probably maybe what somebody would buy to be comparable to what I bought. Yeah, it'd be a flat screen TV. It'd be high def. It'd be internet ready. It'd have all kinds of things. It'd be a much better TV. But it probably costs about $1,000 to buy it. Not, not $600, not, se not $700, $1,000. It's more expensive. Now, adjusted for inflation, it's still probably a little bit cheaper. But it's not 96% cheaper. But the point is that the government is underestimating the actual cost of living when they use these hedonic adjustments because nobody could buy a television set of relative comparable value Meaning, I bought a Sony. I bought one of the top of the lines. I didn't buy the cheapest no-name brand I can find. And I bought a set that was on the large scale based on how big television sets were in 1997. So if you were to buy a similarly positioned product, the same relative 
quality, not the absolute quality that it is today, but relative to what else is out there on the marketplace, yeah, somebody today would pay $1,000 for the television. They're not going to pay $28. You know, to give you an example of what really happens to prices over long term, when you compare apples to apples, because if somebody is buying a television set today versus somebody that bought a television set 20 years ago, obviously they're not buying the same set. The features are different. The materials are different. I mean, it, it, it's not a fair comparison. If you really want to see what's happening to prices, you've got to look at things where they're pretty much exactly the same, where you're buying the same thing, where the quality hasn't changed, right? It's, it's the same product. It's the same quality, and, you know, it's, it, it's the same functionality. And you can, you, you can see that. I mean, I recently had an example of that when my luggage was, uh, was lost on, on Delta Airline. And by the way, I'm still trying to get my money back from these guys. I got 3500 which was the maximum they claimed that they would give me, but it didn't even come close to replacing what was lost in, in my suitcase. I mean, the suitcase itself uh, was about you know, $1,100, just you know, the Ramoa bag. I mean, that, that didn't even start getting into the content of that bag. But one of the things I had in that bag was an Hermes belt. And I had I got that belt. Actually, my mother gave it to me as a as a birthday present. Not quite not quite um, uh, 15 years ago. She gave it to me for my 40th birthday. I'm 54, so I think it was 14 years ago. She got me that belt, and it was a a, a reversible belt. It was black on one side, and it was tan on the other side, or black and brown, black and tan. And she paid about $500 for that belt. It was an expensive belt, and so I went into the Hermes store in Vegas, and they had the same belt. I mean, it did look exactly the same. It was pretty much, I mean, it was. I think it was a little bit thicker than my belt. I mean, maybe that was the style. I mean, a little wider belt, but same leather, same company, same everything. And it was over 900 bucks for that belt. And, and so, you know, it, it almost doubled over the span of, of those years. I mean, so, I mean, there you've got the exact same, same belt. Probably one of the main reasons that, the price wasn't even higher was because of the, the rally that we've had in the dollar, right? Because obviously this is an imported belt and the overvalued dollar is helping to keep the price of that belt in check. I mean, if that belt was manufactured in America, the increase in the cost would have been a lot higher than the increase that was actually experienced. But even with the strength of the dollar that we've had recently, the price is still you know, almost double what it was, uh, you know, 14 years ago. But I bet that if we get the type of decline that I think that we're going to have in the dollar over the next five years, I think the price of that belt could double again in a five-year period of time. Can you imagine that? Imagine looking at a belt and it's 1800 bucks to buy yourself an Hermes belt. But if the dollar does what I think it's going to do, that's exactly what's going to happen. But the point is that when you look at things where the free market isn't interfering, because the free market is letting the government off the hook. When you have te you know, technology, right? when you have market bringing prices down, that can hide a lot of the inflation that the government is creating. And also, can you imagine if television sets are down 96% with all the inflation that's been created? I guess if the government wasn't creating inflation, they'd be down 99% when you adjust them hedonically. But what's more important is not the hedonically adjusted price but the price that people actually pay for the product that they're buying. Like I see with computers, I buy new laptops every few years. And I know 
that every few years when I get a new laptop, that they're better, right? They have, they're faster, they have more memory, but the price never goes down. I mean, I think I'm paying the same price or maybe a little bit more, right? But the government, when they, when they calculate it, they have these huge price declines because the computer that I'm buying is faster and has some features that the computer I used to have. But when it comes to what my cost is every few years of upgrading and getting a new computer, right? Look at the new Apple iPhone, the iPhone 10. It's $1,000, right? I, I never remember a, a phone costing $1,000. I mean, I don't remember. What was the first uh, iPhone, right? I'm sure according to the government, the price of the iPhone has come way down since the first one. I don't remember how much the first one was. Maybe the first one was 500 bucks, right? It's been 10 years. Uh, you know, I just Googled it while, you know, while I was on here. So the first iPhone, when the, when the iPhone initially came out, it was $599, 600 bucks, And then they later dropped it to $399 because I guess they were having trouble selling them. So they dropped them down to $399. Now, the iPhone 10 is $1,000. But I'm sure that based on hedonic adjustments, when the, if the government is going to throw the iPhone 10 into the CPI, they're probably going to show that iPhone being cheaper than the first one. They, they're probably, probably, they're, they're probably going to say that the iPhone, instead of going up, because from 600 uh, to a thousand, right? That's a, that's a huge, that's a, that's a huge increase in price, 40%. And if you look at from 400 to a thousand, right, the price is more than doubled, but I'm sure when the government, you know, looks at how much better the iPhone 10 is than the first iPhone, the government probably going to say that the cost of the iPhone went down. But for somebody who needs to buy a cell phone and wants to buy the latest Apple, it's more expensive now than it was 10 years ago, even though the government is going to use hedonics to try to tell us that the price is lower. So by using all this hedonics, the government can make it appear as if the cost of living is not going up. But the cost of living is going way up, right? The CPI deliberately masks the increase of the cost of living. And of course, when the government indexes these uh, tax brackets to inflation, when they index it to the CPI, it still is not going to capture the real increase in, 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 in the cost of living because the CPI doesn't do it. And the chain CPI, the chain CPI does it, does it even less. So that is an actual tax increase, right? The, the government is increasing taxes by using a, a, a CPI index that is going to be even smaller. Now, another big difference between the Senate bill and the House bill is that the Senate bill does not eliminate the inheritance tax, right? The House bill phases it out to zero. The Senate bill keeps it, right? The only thing they do is they double the exemption. I forget what it is now, four or five million. It gets up to about 10 million. But they don't have the guts to get rid of the estate tax, which I've said before is probably the worst tax that we have, certainly relative to the amount of money that the government collects. It does the most amount of economic damage. It hurts small businesses. It hurts capital accumulation. It prevents capital and know-how and entrepreneurial skills and businesses to pass from generation to generation. It causes entrepreneurs to think with shorter time horizons, to think about investments that only pay off in their own limited lifespan. And certainly, you know, sometimes people don't even, you know, get successful in business and have a big business until they're in their 50s and 60s. And then, you know, you can't make 20, 50 year investments because you're not going to be around. And if you can't make the investments for your kids, then you can't make them. 
And so what the estate tax ends up doing is a lot of people have to liquidate their business before they die, or if they die unexpectedly, the heirs have to scramble to find a buyer so they can pay the tax. That's why guys like Warren Buffett, they love the inheritance tax because Buffett gets to buy up a lot of businesses on the cheap uh, from people who have to scramble to raise the liquidity to pay the estate tax because a lot of these small businesses, the value is in the business itself, in the capital equipment, in a lot of things. It's in inventory. It's not in cash sitting in a checking account. So all of a sudden you get a big bill and you know you got to sell the company. So a lot of damage, a lot of jobs are destroyed, a lot of competition is destroyed. You know, you've got, and I'm going to get to that on this podcast, and you get the government is objecting to the AT&T Time Warner merger, right? They, 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 all the antitrust. Look, forget about all this antitrust. Just get rid of the estate tax. That does a lot more to destroy competition than a merger between AT&T and, and Time Warner would, or any of these mergers that the government wants to break up. Because it's these small companies, family-owned businesses that are liquidated because of the estate tax. And that's where all the jobs are created. They're not created by the Fortune 500 companies. It's these small businesses that create most of the jobs. And those are the businesses that are destroyed, literally destroyed by the estate tax. And, of course, people waste all kinds of money on lawyers and estate planning to avoid the tax anyway. So let's just get rid of it. And, but, you know, it's bad politics because envy, unfortunately, is good politics. But also there are some big corporations, as I said, that benefit from the protection that the estate tax provides because it limits competition. It drives their competitors out of business. It allows them to buy up their competitors on the cheap and make the, uh, the business that they're in uh, less competitive and therefore more, more profitable. So the Republican, the Senate does not even get rid of the estate tax. So as long as I'm kind of on that subject, this whole thing with the government trying to stop or force, they want to force Time Warner to divest itself, to sell CNN, to approve the merger between AT&T and Time Warner. Why? As if AT&T merged with Time Warner and CNN is going to be a monopoly? A monopoly on what? On cellular service? I mean, there's plenty of other cell providers. They're going to be a monopoly for, what, cable TV? For, for content? They want them to sell CNN? I mean, who, what are they smoking over there at the Justice Department? First of all, you know who AT&T and Time Warner compete with that aren't even uh, phone companies or cable companies? They compete with Amazon. They compete with Netflix. You know, they compete with Facebook. I mean, there's so much now, huge mega internet social media companies that didn't even exist that they're competing with. I mean, a lot of these companies, they're just trying to stay alive. They're trying to find a way to stay relevant, you know, and they're, they're trying to merge. I mean, it reminds me of when the government broke up the merger between Blockbuster Video and Hollywood Video. I mean, a lot of you who listen to this are probably don't even remember. You're too young. You don't even remember going to a Blockbuster and renting a video, right? That's what we used to do back in the day, right? I had to go to a video store and stand there and look around. They would have the, the videos uh, on shelves, and you would pick one out, and then you would rent it. And then, you know, you'd have a day or so, you'd have to bring it back. And, you know, of course, a lot of times I would forget to bring it back, and I had to pay an extra day. And it was sometimes it was like 2 $3 a day to rent the video, Right. And of course, if you didn't rewind it, they charged you extra when you returned it. It was all a big hassle. 
But, you know, then you had two of these companies trying to merge and the government actually stopped it because they said, no, you're going to dominate the market. There's not going to be enough competition. These are two of the biggest video rental companies. And this is just within a few years, they were, they were both going bankrupt because they were already put out of business by a new technology that basically made it so no, no one even had to rent videos anymore. So the government is trying to waste taxpayer money preventing two dinosaurs from merging that are about to be extinct anyway, right? And that's kind of what it reminds me when you're talking about old school companies like AT&T, which, you know, by the way, AT&T already owns DirecTV. I know they bought them out. But, I mean, so who cares if they own CNN or not? You know, and who are they going to sell CNN to and what difference does it make? Look, you know, we ought to get rid of all of this antitrust. This is all the trust-busting populist from the early 1900s when we had a wave of populism and anti-big government and everybody was jumping all over Rockefeller and Standard Oil and Alcoa Aluminum and great American success stories that were so competitive that they were delivering excellent quality at prices that were so low that their competitors couldn't compete. And so it was the competitors of these really efficient companies that lobbied for antitrust, not the consumer. The consumers were doing great. And the bottom line is, if the government stayed out of it, right, the consumer would win. You know, the, the argument is, well, you know, we need the government to protect us against monopoly. The free market is the protection against monopoly. Monopolies are not going to exist really in a free market. You know when monopolies exist? When the government licenses a monopoly. When governments punish people, they make it illegal to compete. They give out a monopoly. I mean, governments historically, you know, you go back to the days of, you know, kings and queens. They would actually sell monopolies. You would buy the, a monopoly right to a particular business, and then the, the government soldiers you know, would, would, would punish anybody that tried to compete with you. Right? They, they would sell those rights. So the monopolies come from the state, and we still have that now. You have governments, local governments, giving out monopolies and making it illegal for other people to compete. So those are the type of monopolies that I fear when government comes into the market and prevents competition from working. But I don't care how big a company gets, it doesn't have a real monopoly. Because if it is making monopoly profits, somebody somewhere will find a way to compete. And they're not going to stay a monopoly unless they do so by being so good that nobody can compete. If they keep the quality really high and they keep the prices really low so that no one can compete, yeah, maybe they can stay a monopoly. But so what? Who cares? The, the, the result is not to have competition to protect competitors. It's to protect the consumer. And if the consumer is getting a better deal by one company providing what he wants, then he doesn't need 100 companies. And now, if one company is ripping you off, well, then more companies are going to come in. They will. They will find a way. It always happens. When there are profits to be made, somebody will find out how to get in on it. And so if you have a company that's earning monopoly profits being a monopoly, it won't maintain that for long. But if they're not earning monopoly profits because they're pricing their products very, very low, and there's no problem. Well, there's no monopoly profits. There's no problem. The governments come in, they create a problem where there is none because they just, they just can't resist it. And then, of course, the governments, you know, they're, they're lobbying. They have all their special interests. Now you have to get the merger approved. So you open up, well, you know, now you have these senators or government officials that have to approve a merger. So now what? Oh, I got to make a donation to the guy's campaign or Maybe I got to give him some money under the table, put money in his offshore bank account or whatever. That's where all the, the crime comes in, right? All the lobbying comes in 
is because we give all these elected officials power to determine what merger we're going to approve and what merger we're going to not. So the government shouldn't even have that power because now it can sell uh, that power to the highest bidder. It can go out there and peddle all that influence. So if you want to get the money out of politics, if you don't like all the influence peddling, then we got to take the power away from government. Because as long as government has power, people are going to lobby for it to be used for them as opposed to against them. Another thing I want to talk about, I was reading this article about the public schools in, in Baltimore. And, you know, I always talk about why the government really should do as little as possible because anything the government does, they're, they're going to screw up, right? They're, the, the government, you want to completely minimize uh, anything the government gets involved in because it's not going to do anything well. And education is no exception, which is unfortunate because we have um, the government pretty much handling all the education and it's doing a lousy job uh, of, of educating our kids. But Baltimore, they're doing a particularly lousy job. So Baltimore spends $16,000 per pupil per year, which is the fourth highest of any city in the United States. I didn't realize that. So that's, that's a lot of money. And uh, Baltimore's teachers are very highly paid. Right? In fact, the average teacher in, uh, in Baltimore earns more than the average teacher in Boston, even though the cost of living in Boston is more than 30% higher than the cost of living in Baltimore. So that means that relative to the cost of living, right, they're paid 30% more uh, than the Boston public schools. And Boston public schools are ranked number one in the United States uh, for major cities, right, number one. Yet the teachers in Baltimore are paid on a relative basis 30% more than the teachers in Baltimore, and the schools are awful. In fact, the, the article that I read, literally a third of the schools, when they tested the kids in math, 0%, 0%, not a single student was proficient in mathematics. Now, what proficient means is that they're performing at grade level. And believe me, the bar is very low. So when you're saying, you know, an eighth grader is doing eighth grade work, I mean, it's not, it's not really hard. I, you know, so these are low bars. Yet basically nobody, nobody in a third of these schools are performing math at the grade level. None, not a single one. And then, of course, you know, there are other schools, like I think that where 1% of the students can do math or can do math at grade level. You know, I looked at the names of some of these schools. Let me, here's the names of three of the schools where they had 0% math proficiency. One was, is called Achievement Academy. The other one is called Excel Academy. And the other one is called Knowledge and Success Academy. You know, I'm not making this stuff up. These are the actual names of these schools and 0% proficiency in mathematics, right? I mean, if, this, if, if these were private companies, right, they'd lock up the owners for false advertising. How could you call yourself knowledge and success when you have no success at all? I mean, could you imagine a U.S. business that was this bad? I mean, there was one school in this article that was a, that was a, a, a magnet school. It was an all-boys school, and this was the best school that the city had. And everybody was trying to get into it. It was a long rating line. You know what their proficiency rate was? 14%. Only 14% of the kids 
were performing at grade level. I mean, and this is, they're holding this up as a great achievement of a government school. I mean, can you imagine if a private business, you know, was producing a product and only 14% worked, right? I mean, if you, if you had, what, 86% defective, would that be a success? No, they'd, be, they'd go right out of business. Why isn't the Baltimore public schools going out of business? Because they got a monopoly, right? This is a government monopoly. There's no choice. There's no freedom. They are, they are delivering lousy service, yet there's no competition. The parents are stuck. They're overpaying $16,000 a kid. Can you imagine what a private school could do if they had $16,000 a kid to educate these kids? I mean, some of the entrepreneurs that are operating in the internet space, you know, I talk about how the free market has been bringing down the price of a television to the point where the quality is up so much that on a quality basis, you could say that the price of TVs is down by 96%. Is the price of education down by 96%? No, it just keeps going up and up and up because the free market is not involved in education. The free market is involved in making computers. Can you imagine how expensive television sets would be today if the government made them? I mean, nobody could afford them, right, if the government made them. Yet this is a, this is a horrible uh, system. The teachers are making a fortune. The administrators, I don't even know what the salaries are for the vice principals and the principals and all the other people involved in the educational bureaucracy of the city of Baltimore. But I'm sure there are a lot of people making a lot of money off this educational system where no one is getting educated. I'm sure the typical liberal would look at these low scores and look at how these students are doing lousy and they would conclude, oh, we just need more money, right? More money for education, right? And if you're against it, well, you must be against education. You're against these kids. Look, all that would mean is we'd throw more money down the same rat hole. I couldn't care if they spent 20000 a pupil, if they spent $30,000 a pupil, it wouldn't make any difference. Right, none of it would go to the kids. It would just go to higher salaries and, and you know more perks and more graft and whatever it is. You know, look, look at all the money that Puerto Rico spent, the government of Puerto Rico spent on the power. They went into debt, they borrowed billions of dollars, yet none of the money went into improving the power grid or the infrastructure, just lined the pockets of the bureaucracy. So you never do anything. More money at government is never going to solve the problem. It doesn't matter how much money you give government. The problem is government. So if the people of Baltimore want a solution that's going to work, they got to shut down these government schools. they got to have some kind of voucher system and let the public. You don't even need 16000 I bet for five grand a pupil, a free market guy can come in there and run a hell of a school and hire some good teachers and actually teach these kids how to do math. You know, I mean, how hard can it be? You know, and you've got a lot of more, you know, tools out there. You've got the Internet. I mean, it's a lot easier to teach people and for people to learn today than it was uh, years and years ago. But this is just another another perfect example of the failure of government and, and, and the welfare state. And I don't know how many more examples people need before they before they get the message. You know, I want to finish up this podcast again uh, by talking about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. You know, we had a huge uh, move the last couple of days. Remember, my last podcast, I mentioned that uh, Bitcoin went all the way up to almost 8,000, right? It, it got up to a new record high of uh, 7,900. Well, this morning, 
Bitcoin got all the way down to about 6,400. So almost a 20% drop from like yesterday's high to this morning's low or high from two days ago. Huge drop, almost an entire bear market in the span of two, two trading days. So lots of volatility. As I'm recording this, we've already snapped back up. You know, we're now trading over 6,700. The low was just above 6,400. But on the other, on the other uh, extreme, you had a huge rally in Bitcoin Cash. Now, I talked about uh, Bitcoin Cash uh, some time ago. It was a spinoff, right? It, there was a fork from Bitcoin, and everybody that had Bitcoin got some Bitcoin Cash. Well, the price of Bitcoin Cash today surged by about 50% at one point as you know the price of Bitcoin was down about 10%. Now, what sparked the move as I was reading that a lot of people were saying that Bitcoin Cash is going to be the new Bitcoin, that they may eventually just drop the name Cash and just Bitcoin Cash will become Bitcoin. Well, then what happens with the old Bitcoin? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think what they're saying is that Bitcoin Cash, which will be the new Bitcoin, will be the cryptocurrency that people actually use because it's apparently it's a lot faster and it's a lot better than the old Bitcoin. And so the old Bitcoin won't be the, the currency that anybody actually uses. They'll just hoard it. They'll just hold on to it. And that's again, that's why I've been talking about how people have been describing Bitcoin not as a digital currency, but as digital gold. So maybe Bitcoin is going to become something that you just hold on to as a store of value. But if you actually want to go buy something, well, then there you use your Bitcoin cash, which I guess eventually will be called Bitcoin. And I don't know what the old Bitcoin will be called, Bitcoin Classic. I mean, they can't call it Bitcoin gold because they're, they're spinning off Bitcoin gold. I think that might be next week. I read about this other cryptocurrency that's going to be another spinoff of Bitcoin, which is going to be Bitcoin gold. Now, I said this the first time when they spun off Bitcoin Cash. I said, so you're telling me that even though there's 21 million Bitcoins, that Bitcoin can spin off as many little uh, baby Bitcoins as it wants? I mean, what? So now we have Bitcoin gold. Are we going to have Bitcoin platinum? Are we going to have Bitcoin silver? I mean, there's no limit to how many names you can add in front of or behind the Bitcoin. I mean, again, to me, this is just massive inflation. This just shows how how the, this a bunch of nonsense. I mean, if everybody is going to want Bitcoin Cash because Bitcoin Cash is going to be the cryptocurrency that everybody uses, then why is the other Bitcoin worth anything? I mean, it's just a store of value. Storing it for what? If no one's going to use it as a medium of exchange because they're all going to use the new one, then what's the point of holding out of the old one? Because you think it's going to have some value as the digital gold. I, mean, I actually was reading some article where somebody was trying to talk about the earlier Bitcoins, right? The ones that came out early. Because, like, obviously there was the first one created, the second one. You know, so there are some Bitcoins that are, what, seven, eight years older, right? Someone trying to talk about that they have collector's value. Like, they're kind of numismatics. Like, you know, oh, I got the first Bitcoin. I got, like, they're going to be worth extra because they, you know, they have some kind of, you know, premium value because they were the first ones. I mean, all this nonsense coming out trying to justify this. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, um, the futures contract is coming on this thing, you know, before the end of the year. And again, I said, I don't know why the crypto community is so excited about a futures contract because that's one of the things they didn't like about gold was because it could be manipulated. You know, that happened today. All of a sudden, in the middle of the day, right around the close of the London market, somebody comes in and dumps, you know, a huge amount of gold on the market. This happens quite often in the gold market. A huge sell order. 
you know, like knocks down the price deliberately, obviously, right? Because the only reason that somebody is going to come rushing in and, uh, and selling at the market, you know, right near the, the close of the London Exchange, is because they don't care about what happens to the price, right? What kind of seller doesn't care what happens to the price? I mean, normally, if you want to sell something, you want to get the highest price you can, right? I mean, clearly. So you would try to sell slowly. You would try to be very cautious about it. You wouldn't want to spook the market. You wouldn't want to let them know you're trying to get out because you want to sell at a high price. But if you just dump a large amount on the market all at once, knowing that the price is going to go down, knowing you're going to get out at a bad price, obviously you're doing that for a reason. And that goes on all the time in the gold market. So you know, can you imagine how much that could go on in the cryptocurrency market? Because I mean, you don't actually need to have any gold to sell gold futures. You can just sell them. Well, the same thing is going to happen with Bitcoin. Once Bitcoin has a futures contract, anybody could just sell Bitcoin futures. They don't even have to own any Bitcoin. Just dump on the futures market. And of course, that's going to happen. And I mentioned on my earlier podcast that at least the gold contract, in theory, the people who short gold can be forced to deliver it because the people who go long gold can demand delivery. But Bitcoin is going to be 100% cash settled. So even if you own Bitcoin futures, you can never get delivery in Bitcoin. All you can do is cash out when the contract uh, matures and you're going to get the, the dollar value of your Bitcoin. But you, you can never actually get Bitcoin, which means the short sellers can never be forced to deliver Bitcoin. So I would imagine that there could be a lot more manipulation. Also on Bitcoin, I was watching an interview with Maria Bartiromo. She was interviewing Alan Greenspan. And I hadn't really heard Alan Greenspan talk much about Bitcoin. And pretty much now, every time anybody is interviewed, they're asked to opine on Bitcoin, which, again, to me, would be worrisome if I owned a lot of Bitcoin, because uh, I would see that as evidence of maybe a top, whether it maybe it's just a short-term top or a long-term top. Uh, but a few years ago, nobody was asked about Bitcoin. Now, pretty much everybody who gets interviewed gets asked about it. I mean, I, I get asked about it all the time now. I mean, I, I didn't used to get asked about it. And there are a lot of people that, you know, whenever I talk about Bitcoin, they'll say, hey, Peter, you know, just why don't you stop talking about Bitcoin? You don't know what you're talking about. I don't, you know, I don't even go out of my way to bring it up. Everybody asks me about it, just like Maria Bartiromo is asking Alan Greenspan for his opinion on Bitcoin. But before she got to the Bitcoin question, she was going to ask him about Jay Powell, the nominee for chairman of the Fed. That is uh, Trump's pick, which is basically a disappointment to anybody who thought that he was going to shake things up at the Fed, that he was a hard money guy. Jay Powell is Janet Yellen, uh, you know, but just with a Republican, an R by his name instead of a D. Uh, so he is going to be just as political for him as Yellen was for Obama and do everything uh, that he criticized when he was a candidate. He wants a guy to do the exact same thing now that he's president. But Maria was going to ask Greenspan his opinion. But, you know, his opinion really isn't the part of the interview that was interesting to me. It was the way Maria Bartiromo introduced Al Greenspan because she prefaced a question. She said, well, you know, you ran the Fed for a long time and you left and you left the institution in great shape. Everything was great when you left. And I'm like, what is she talking about? Does she not remember the, uh, the housing bubble? I mean, she was working on CNBC the whole time. He was blowing that bubble. You know, he left, and within two years of his leaving, 
we had a financial crisis. Does, does Mario Bartiromo think that the Federal Reserve had nothing to do with that financial crisis? That the policies of Alan Greenspan, the guy that encouraged everybody to use adjustable rate mortgages, the guy that encouraged people to use their house as an ATM and then complimented Americans for being smart enough to use their house in that way, to use their house as an asset. I mean, this is the guy that provided all the fuel for the housing bubble. He was the head of the Federal Reserve when all the air was being blown into it. He just left before it blew up. I mean, the air came out on uh, Ben Bernanke, but Ben Bernanke didn't inflate the bubble, although he was a member of the Fed. He was on the FOMC when the bubble was being blown, as was Janet Yellen. But he was, you know, he was leading the pack. He was the, the number one guy. He was the maestro. So for Mario Bartiromo to say that he left everything in great shape, that shows you how little she understands about the dynamics that went into uh, the financial crisis, why we had that crisis, uh, what precipitated it. I mean, it's got Alan Greenspan's fingerprints all over it. I remember back then, I used to talk about the people that created the um, the financial crisis, and I, I talked about a number of players in the game, and I had a deck of cards. And I used to refer to each person as a particular a card in a deck of cards. And Alan Greenspan was my ace of spades, which meant, I mean, he was, you know, he was the number one guy when it came to being responsible for the financial crisis. But I want to get into his comments about Bitcoin because he basically said it was a fiat currency, the same uh, thing I've been saying, except a fiat digital currency. And he actually compared it to the Continental, which was the paper currency that circulated in the colonies uh, during the, the Revolutionary War. And by the time the Constitution was ratified, the Continental had collapsed. And that's one of the reasons that we were on a gold standard, that the, um, the Constitution of the United States established gold as the legal tender for the United States and limited the powers of the states to make anything for, but gold and silver coin, legal tender and payment of debt. And the federal government was given no power whatsoever uh, to print money or issue bills of credit. The only thing it could do was coin gold and silver. And one of the reasons for that is because they, the, the, the founders had a very bad experience with Continental. Continental collapsed, and uh, it ended up losing 90% of its value, and it gave way to the expression, not worth the Continental. I mean, that's still part of the American lexicon, although a lot of people today, uh, certainly those who are educated in the U.S. school system, probably have never even heard of the Continental, so I don't know the, the expression, not worth the Continental. But it makes me think, at some point in the future, uh, might the American lexicon have the expression, not worth a Bitcoin? I mean, maybe uh, not worth a Bitcoin uh, will be the new uh, not worth a continental, and it might be something uh, that lives uh, for a long time as part of Americana, uh, that expression, and maybe it'll be used at some point to describe something that is practically worthless or something that at one point had a lot of value, uh, but then completely collapsed and people lost a lot of money. So bear that in mind uh, when you're buying Bitcoin or if you still own them. Uh, remember what happened to the Continental. And, uh, you know, Alan Greenspan is not always wrong. He is probably the smartest Fed chairman we've ever had, even if he deliberately or, you know, got us into the financial crisis. I think Alan Greenspan understands what he did wrong. I just think he doesn't have the integrity uh, to admit it, 
And so he's gonna, you know, gonna take this set to the grave. Thank you.